This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. And we are live. I am super honored to have a guest today that I've wanted to have on for actually a couple of years, but didn't feel prepared to have him, wanted to interview a lot of other people. Tom O'Neill has written probably the authoritative volume about Charles Manson, ties to MK Ultra, the 60s. The book is Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And perfect title. How are you doing today, Tom? Good. Thanks, Eric. How are you? I'm doing good. Now, this is only like an hour or so of a podcast. So we're going to be all over the place, most likely. Obviously, we can't cover the big meaty parts of the book, but I I just want to give everybody a a feeling of what is going, how it has kind of consumed your life, which I think is the other story. Um, Behind you, there are some binders. Is that all research from this book? It's all research. Yeah. And it's about I said earlier one fifth, but now that we've moved the angle, it's like one set. There's about seven times as many binders as you see there. I could wing this thing around if you wanted to see more, but uh, yeah, we had camera issues, so I don't want to risk that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. It was 20 years, so uh, I, uh, you know, not luckily I didn't throw anything away because you never know when something that you thought was a kind of a dead end road might become important two, three years later. And that happened quite a bit during the many years I was reporting this. Now, a lot of your research, and I want to go into this is, I mean, you were digging, I mean, you were spending like weeks in the UCLA law library from my understand. I hope that you have a functioning scanner and that you have this all archived and encrypted and in five locations. Um, yes and no. I mean, I I wasn't allowed to scan stuff at the UCLA library when I was there in the early 2000s, but I could have it photocopied. Mm -hmm. Um, That stuff, the most important stuff is scanned uh, and backed up. And uh, I had a safe deposit box, but I decided not to keep it anymore because it was getting too expensive. Uh, Especially after the book came out and I knew that this information was out there, I felt much less proprietary over it and worried about it disappearing or being stolen. Um, The most important thing is um, everything I've found, I have notes in in my hard drive on, you know, where the original documents are, where I got them, interviews, that kind of thing. And that's all backed up and saved in safe places. Oh, good, good. Now, and I guess I'm jumping ahead, but I I was thinking of, you know, closing out the book, you were, talking about uh, Arlen Specter, how you're trying to get um, a meeting with him and other people, but really nobody cared and nobody wanted to talk to you. Now, since the book has come out, are some people actually talking to you, especially with Vincent Bugliosi dead, Charles Manson dead? and Uh, Not the kind of high-ranking officials who I hoped would. Uh, People who have information 
have come up through the cracks, you know, wanting to share stuff. I got to be real careful because, you know, 70 to 90 percent of them are, are, are crazy people or, or people that just have tons of speculative things they pulled off of the Internet or whatnot. But there have been, you know, a dozen or more uh, that have come with really important, significant information to me, documents, books or clippings uh, or resources that I might not have found on my own. Um, but as far as people in law enforcement, I actually get a lot of attorneys reach out to me to commend, you know, my work. And, and some of them knew attorneys here in Los Angeles or even in the D.C. areas of the, you know, the federal government stuff, knew those people. But all of them are just kind of reaching out to congratulate me, which is great to hear. But I haven't had any really higher up people, you know, do what I hope would do, which is reach out to me to say, OK, you got a lot right, but here's more and here's what you need, that missing link. Uh, and this can be my deathbed confession. So maybe that only happens in the movies or maybe it's still going to happen. Um, but nobody in uh, in positions of power, either before or now, uh, has come to me, unfortunately. And that, that's a, something I was hoping might happen. The people who have come forward, have they um, verified what you've come up with? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, the only people that came up with stuff that contradicted my stuff are people who are more obsessive than I have, who, starting when the book was published in June of, uh, June of 2019, so almost exactly two years ago, uh, I would get messages from people with fact checks. And a lot of them were incorrect, but there were enough, probably 50 or 60 minor mistakes, spellings, dates, things like that, that, you know, I uh, luckily had a second chance with a paperback that came out after the hardcover. So I was able to remedy a lot of stuff, you know, that most, you know, your layperson would miss like I did, even though I'm not a layperson. But some of the stuff was very embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, nothing that changed anything in the content of the book or the narrative, but just stuff like I'm like, oh, my God, how did I miss that? Or, uh, But nothing, um, nothing, I, nobody has come to me with any kind of proof that anything I allege in my book was wrong. And we were also concerned, especially the publisher, about um, being sued by the people who are alive who are still in the book, especially people who weren't you know, national figures, doctors, people like that. And we were certain at least two or three or more would file lawsuits or at least threaten to. And we haven't gotten a single one, which hmm. I think is good because it shows that, you know, most of the people who'd want to sue are the people who I said the worst stuff about. And they have to know that if they sue me, then they'd be subject to discovery where they would have to answer in my answer to their lawsuit, I'd say, all right, produce this, that, or the other thing. So that hasn't happened either. And, um, you know, uh, I, the publisher was also worried about Ben Spuliosi's estate. Now, I've said this a million times, and a lot of people don't believe me. I was devastated when he died in 2016 or whatever, not, you know, before my book was done, because I really, really wanted him alive to answer for this. I know it would be a lot harder to get through the, vetting of the book, but I have everything backed up. And 
one thing that I know is when I did go through pretty rigorous fact checking with my publisher, they said to me that um, even if he were alive, I mean, even now that he's dead, you still are vulnerable to a lawsuit because his wife, his widow, uh, owns the estate. And that estate has been attacked by your book. And she can claim that, you know, you're publishing fallacies or or untruths that <laughs> diminish, you know, the value of Helter Skelter, my husband's book, or his other books. But she hasn't done that. Nobody's done it from his family, which, again, makes me think that, you know, I always felt that everything in the book stood up, you know, to review. And the fact that nobody sued me or, or showed me anything wrong in it is uh, a nice little validation of that. What I find so troubling and weird about that is you tie so, or you haven't, um, I think you even said in the book, you haven't conclusively proven absolutely that these threads definitely tie together. And so I, everything is speculation and, you know, I'll freely put that out there right now to kind of cover the basis, mm -hmm. but going to Bugliosi, we were just talking about, um, mm -hmm. it is very odd how there's one line uh, about the CIA, Jack Ruby, Charles Manson, LSD, MK Ultra. this path that's going one direction. And then there's a parallel path with the prosecution of Charles Manson by Vincent Bugliosi with this grandiose theory, which is kind of grandiose, but kind of I don't know. It seems convoluted and sort of intentional, but maybe not in the way he's saying it from the book. And then he's also the guy who wrote the quote authoritative um, debunking of multiple killers for JFK. <laughs> yeah. Ironic, it's, huh? It is. Was he actually a player somehow more than just a, an extremely ambitious prosecutor? Uh I went back and forth on that thought for 20 years. Um, I think he was definitely an ambitious prosecutor who got handed a case because he was mm -hmm. compromised by the stuff that I uncovered he was involved with prior to the Tate LaBianca trial where the DA's office found out he was stalking and harassing a milkman who he thought had impregnated his baby, breaking the law to do it, you know, using... Uh, investigators from their office. He, he should have lost his job, could have been prosecuted for that, definitely should have been disbarred. And then while this happened after, there was the whole mistress episode where he beat the hell out of his mistress because she wouldn't abort the baby he had. And again, I didn't care about the peccadilloes of, of a man who is a famous person in LA and probably you know, has lots of mistresses. But when he breaks the law, regarding the mistresses and then lies to the police when she reports a beating she suffered from him and to the newspapers, then it became relevant to what I was saying he was doing in 1969. So as far as how plugged in and it's speculation, but I do think it was more than just ambition. I think that uh, the fact that you see what happened with his JFK book that you're alluding to uh, that he was working on many of the years that I was working on mine and uh, he would talk to me about. Um, and I'm no JFK expert. The only thing I'm really an expert on outside of Manson and involving JFK is just the relationship between Jack Ruby and the uh, psychiatrist who 
if, if you believe oh, what I found, you, you know, snapped his mind in half. Um, mm -hmm. That's as far as it goes. So I, I'm not an authority, authoritative enough to say that Vince's whole book about the Kennedy assassination is bogus, but people I respect who are experts and say that I tend to believe, and I tend to believe it wasn't his choice to write that book, that he was under orders for a lot of stuff that he was compromised by for you know decades at that point. So maybe it was given to him almost as a reward? Yeah, yeah, possibly. Or cursed. Um, was, would that involve Reeve, Whit, um, Reeve Whitson, possibly? Uh, well, Reeve Whitson is uh, such a shadowy figure. Uh, Vince, who, who, who I, I write in the book that he denied remembering or knowing him, even though um, in the trial, uh, the name Reeve came up when a very important witness, a Tommy, was testifying, and the defense wanted to know how uh, Hatami had been found by uh, law enforcement, and he started talking about Reeve, uh, and, and he, he talks about this shadowy, spooky guy who uh, brought him to Vince, and basically, he didn't say this on the stand, but he said it to me later, that he was blackmailed by them and strong-armed by them to testify uh, and to uh, right. testify to their script, or he would be deported to Iran, um, where he was an uh, exile. So, um, can we talk about who Reeve is? Um, so we yeah. have not yet digging too deep in the curse of knowledge here. Uh, yeah. he's pretty much the first CIA tie that you found as you were researching, right? Or, well, he was the first one who this kind of shadowy, spooky guy whose name kept uh popping up in relation to first the investigation of the murders immediately after they happened. Uh, he was described by uh, the cops, the head of the Tate murder investigation, who wrote a book that was never published, as a, a spook or an informant who seemed to be wherever they were going to investigate or interview people before they got there. Um, mm. They gave him a, a, a fraudulent name, you know, a pseudonym in the book. And I had to was put all these pieces down on yeah, the yeah, drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, when I interviewed Hatami, he was the first one to mention Reeve's name to me. And then I started thinking, is he the one that they were talking about in this book? And then I started talking to other people and I found out that Reeve had been heavily involved in helping the LAPD solve, solve the killings uh, and uh, had this kind of... Uh, entree into the police world that was never explained. Um, and he was dead at the time I started my reporting. He had just died like a year before. His family actually thinks he would, might have been murdered. And they said his home was ransacked when they went to get his belongings. But um, he, uh, he told his closest friends in the couple years before his death, uh, including his attorney, that uh, his his biggest regret of his life was he could have saved Sharon Tate and the people at the house because he knew what was going to happen there before it happened and he did nothing to prevent it. Um, and he further explained to them that he had infiltrated the Manson family in an undercover operation. So that was kind of one of the roads I went down off and on for 15 years trying to get more and more proof of that. Now, the CIA would never admit that he worked for them. 
but they did give me the neither confirm nor deny. Uh, oh, they didn't deny it then. <laughs> yeah, answer. And uh, he definitely was working in intelligence and undercover operations. I, I got photographs from his daughter of him masquerading as a hippie in 1968, 69. He was a very right-wing conservative guy who was also um, a racist and uh, was close to some high-level Nazi figures here in Los Angeles, neo-Nazi type. So very colorful guy who I'm still, you know, even though the book's been done for two years, I'm still digging into that world and trying to get more information. And through the help of some of the people who've come to me, I'm getting more. Uh, I don't know yet if I have enough to do a second book, but probably. I've seen a FOIA uh, before on another CIA agent or, or, you know, speculated. And they did conclusively say in that, that there is no association with a person of this name ever with this agency. So yeah, the fact that they didn't deny, and I have seen FOIAs where they conclusively deny uh, take it or leave it. I, I feel like that that is a different message than a conclusive denial. Well, I, I don't tell this story in the book, I don't think, but um, I might have told it on another interview or podcast. At the time that um, my book deal fell apart with the first publisher, Penguin Press, uh, about 2011, uh, I agreed to take on a collaborator, a New York Times reporter who was a real heavy hitter, A-lister. And um, through that relationship with him, we hired a woman at the Washington Post, whose name wow. I won't say right now, but she was their national security kind of fact checker researcher. I liked her a lot. And she was the one who had kind of a, a, a back alley route to the CIA where they would tell her stuff that they wouldn't officially say. So she went to them on my behalf after I'd already gotten the official FOIA you know, response. Mm-hmm. And they told her, her contact there, that we looked into it and Reed Whitson had nothing to do with this agency. He's not in our records. We don't know who he is. Uh, sorry to disappoint you and your, and your writer. And I said to her, I said, all right, well, let's test them now. Because they've also given me the neither confirm nor deny on Jolly West, the MK Ultra psychiatrist, who I uncovered documents showing that he was a pivotal part of the MK Ultra program for 20 years. And he practically wrote the blueprint for it with Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head technician of it within the agency. I found letters between them over a course of five years planning experiments on people without their awareness, all kinds of horrible things. And now this woman at the Post who was working with me knew that I had those documents and knew that they were CIA documents and stuff that nobody had ever seen, but I got. So I said, do not tell them what we have on him, but we both know that if they say, no, he had nothing to do with us either, then we can't trust anything they've told you at least about Reeve and probably for all the years you've been at the post. <laughs> and sure enough, they, this one, we got the Reeve answer in about a week. We got the Jolly West answer. It took about six to seven months. And I kept pushing her saying, when are they going to mm. tell you what's taking so long? And finally they gave her the same answer. No record, no association with us. Now um, my uh, collaboration with the author fell apart. And uh, at that point, my relationship with the postwoman ended on good terms. But I did say, you really need to now look at your relationship with the CIA in a whole different light because you saw how they lied to you about this. 
You know, and again, maybe the person you're there, your your conduit there is being lied to by the agency. That's likely. Sure. So she or he might not be personally lying to you, but you can't trust what they're telling you. And every post story I read about national security issues, anything about the CIA, I'm going to be skeptical of now. Well, as you should be. Um, I, I, the term doesn't come to my mind right away, but Michael Crane talks about it. And it's an effect where essentially we have a habit of we know something about our subject and we look at the press and they're like, they're completely wrong. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. And then we read another article and we're like, what? That's messed up. And the truth is that if they're wrong about what you do know, then the odds are probably wrong about what you don't know, too. Exactly. And yeah. I, I cannot remember the effect. Uh, it completely slipped my mind. So can we take a brief timeline, I guess, tour? I'm guessing that the problems with all of this started when you were really digging into Charles Manson and the family before anything happened. Like, I guess he was being arrested a lot. Yeah. Well, those are some of my first important discoveries. And again, nothing came easy. It took me about a year of uh, FOIA requests. Some agencies you actually can get results with. Uh, the CIA have never been satisfied. Some FBI FOIAs have come back to me with stuff I was surprised they released. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons, I went to them to try to get Manson's federal parole record for the two years he was free from 67 to 69 before he committed or, or ordered or, or was involved with the Tate LaBianca murders in, in August of 69. And it took a year of back and forth appeals. They finally started releasing me documents. And what I found was, if, if you read Helter Skelter, Bulios, he talks about Manson having a few arrests. That he, he didn't understand why Manson hadn't been violated because he was on federal parole. But what I found from the file was there were about four or five times as many arrests as, as Bugliosi had written about. And uh, none of them made sense that he, he wouldn't be not only were the charges dropped in, in cases for where he had drug possession, he was in the uh, in the presence of uh, underage girls who he was pimping out and had guns, including machine guns. And he's on federal parole. You're not allowed to have that stuff. Or you're violated. But he also had been arrested twice for rape, um, for interfering with a, a officer in the line of duty by uh, pulling a, a 14 or 15 year old girl away from out of the hands of the officers and standing between them to re prevent them from taking her. I mean, there were all these violations and, and it didn't make sense to me that he would keep getting free, that he had to get out of jail card, a uh, uh, free card. So a, a kind of momentous moment or a turning point was when I brought all that stuff to a retired uh, deputy DA who had also been a criminal court judge in the San Fernando Valley who actually had Manson in front of him on a minor violation in 68, I think. So he was retired and I laid out everything I had in chronological order and he was going through this at his home. He was dying at the time. He was on a, a, a ventilator and had a real raspy voice and he let me record him and luckily I picked up what he said and he just said, chicken shit, chicken shit, chicken shit. Everything you're showing me here is chicken shit. Somebody wanted him outside. He had somebody handling him and he was more value to them outside than inside, meaning out free than inside back in prison. And he said, 
often you can um, attribute this kind of stuff to, you know, bureaucratic red tape. We didn't have computers then, but not this much. He goes, this is, I've never seen anything like this, except in the case of somebody who's an informant, who has a relationship with law enforcement. And I said, well, which law enforcement or which agency? He goes, that's your job. You've got to find that out. He said, I will be looking at the LAPD, the sheriffs, or I'd also look at the FBI. And yeah. So that was, uh, then I started finding out all these anomalies about his relationship with his first parole officer when he was released, uh, Roger Smith, um, who was a criminologist and a drug researcher in San Francisco, where Manson ended up in March or April of 67. And for one year, Roger Smith supervised Manson's parole, but supervises a very generous uh, way to put it. He, he basically uh, protected him from getting sent back to prison. Uh, he, uh, and not only him, but the women too. In 1968, five women were arrested, Manson followers were arrested in Mendocino for among other charges, distributing drugs, contributing to the delinquency of minors. They had been sent up there by Charlie to recruit, recruit young kids to the family. And one of the kids who they had given LSD to was like a 15 year old boy who was the son of a deputy sheriff. And he went home freaking out. They raided this house. So when the three of the girls actually had charges brought against them, the other two were dismissed for lack of evidence or whatnot. And the three women all pled down so they didn't have a trial, Um, but they were, uh, could have been sent to state prison. And uh, the probation officer who did the report on them to recommend to the judge, either giving them probation or sending them to prison for two or three years, spoke to the Roger Smith and Roger Smith gave glowing, inaccurate reviews of the three women, two of whom ended up killing for Manson, Susan Atkins, uh, who was involved in the Hinman murder and the Tate murders, and Mary Bruner, who also was involved in the Hinman murders. Uh, he knew them and he said that they were both, you know, God-fearing women who had a lot of potential. They shouldn't be sent to prison. <laughs> And that was the least of it. He also foster, he took into foster care Manson's son, baby son, that he had had with Bruner when Bruner was in jail awaiting, you know, the outcome of these proceedings for about six months. He and his wife went to Northern California and petitioned the court to become the foster parents of his client's son, completely uh, unorthodox. And and then, um, well, there's a lot more stuff that's just in the book. I could go on forever about Roger. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, this is, this is awesome. And, it's interesting. You talked about the uh, snitch uh, tie, and there's a prison tie. I had a, a previous guest on uh, a couple of times, Bradley uh, Schreiber. Oh yeah, he wrote a book. Okay, I good. He wrote a book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. He mm-hmm. um he wrote a book about uh, Donald DeFreeze and the Sydney's yeah. uh, Liberation Army, and oh, there's a lot of parallels that are yeah. kind of spooky. Um, L.A., Reagan, CIA, yeah, yeah. Um, Black Panthers, um, racial tension. It, it just seems completely crazy. Now, you spent a lot of time, or it came up an awful lot. Was it um, the significance of that raid where it was the largest raid in California history? I think you described it as, and then it just kind of, was a nothing burger? 
Yeah, it was the largest raid in the history of the state up to that point until the raid on the house that uh, Patty Hearst was kept in, 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 I think, East L.A. or South L.A., when they ended up uh, burning down the house and killing about six SLA members, not Patty, but Donald DeFreeze was killed in that fire. Um, yeah, this was the largest, and um, there was, you know, six weeks, eight weeks of surveillance on the family, very close surveillance. I, and again, I got these documents through a back door. I got led into the sheriff's archives unofficially by, uh, let's say, a sympathetic retired deputy who as part of his retirement job, was uh, the security guard there. And I spent a whole summer being the only person ever to have access to that file. And I just found many, many more examples of leniency exhibited toward Manson, plus much more knowledge of what the sheriffs, who their jurisdiction was the Spawn Ranch area in Topanga Canyon. Topanga Canyon is where Gary Himmon lived and was killed. The Spawn Ranch was where the Manson lived mostly for two years. So that raid occurred on August 16th, 69, uh, literally a week, I think, to the day that the tape murders happened on the 8th, or uh, a week and a day or whatever, my mask bad. And uh, they, they had, uh, I think, 102 agents or something, and they had surrounded the ranch, and at like an hour before dawn, they just invaded. They had helicopters, all-terrain vehicles, uh, police dogs, and they arrested about 30 of the group, including Manson, and uh, confiscated stolen vehicles. Um, Manson and Bugliosi kept this out of Helter Skelter. And when you read my book, you'll see why. Uh, Manson had stolen credit cards in his pocket when he was arrested, which, again, was a, a, a parole violation. But he was also the only person named in the 30-page search warrant, which I got I think it's out there now available on the internet, but I got it in about 2000 or 2001 from the sheriff's files. And I saw that he was identified as the ringleader of this group and everything in it was true that, you know, he was using these young girls, not only for sex, but to sell, you know, to make money off of as uh, prostitutes, they had automatic weapons, you know, all these violations that sort of should have sent him right back to prison. But not only that, not only wasn't he violated, but charges were dropped against all the entire group of about 30, 32 that were arrested. And Bugliosi lied in Helter Skelter. And he only, I think, covered the, the, this raid in like a paragraph, like a quarter of a page of the book. And he said the reason that they were all released was that the warrant was misstated. So it was invalid, the search warrant. Well, I found out by getting the warrant and then taking it to, among others, the two deputies who wrote it, who were in charge of the raid. Um, it wasn't misstated. There was a, it had the wrong, a different date than when the raid was, but they had a 10 day window before and after. So it was a completely valid uh, warrant. So then of course I went to the deputy DA, a guy named Bob Shern to find out, well, if it wasn't an invalid warrant, he was the one who signed the document saying, release them all. He and I showed him everything I had, you know, uh, the reports of all the criminal activity there. And he basically said to me, he was still at the DA's office sitting across his desk. He said, I, I can't tell you why I released them. And I said, you can't because you're unable, unwilling. He goes, I forget. And he said it almost like a, a question. <laughs> yeah. And this, is, this is what I dealt with for 20 years, you know. So that was another big kind of riddle 
of Helter Skelter that jumped out at me when I read the book for the first time, which I never read until I got this as a magazine assignment. I wasn't interested in this story, this case, nothing. But once I read the book, which to me was riveting, I mean, I read it in like a day or two because it really moves. But I would circle stuff that were, you know, holes in the narrative, stuff that didn't quite make, make sense. And then, of course, I read it <laughs> hundreds of times again. Um, but this was one of the things like, why would they conduct this massive raid, put all this money and manpower into it and turn up all this evidence of exactly what they're looking for and then release everybody? Wow. You, you should release the uh, um, Helter Skelter um, Companion Edition. <laughs> that would be very interesting because yeah. it is a great book. I mean, I, I remember reading way, way, way back in the day. And it, yes, it's riveting and everything else. Right. But it would be funny. Right. You know, footnotes left, right, left, right. Okay, yeah. highlight. Like, here, let's insert two more paragraphs here. Um, let's add Here's this my here. original, the, the one I oh, had that, uh, <laughs> if you can see all the tabs, and it's completely falling apart because it's been, I've got like seven more there, but that's the first one. Wow. <laughs> There's a collectible for you. Um, okay, so from that, one significant thing, too, was all of Manson's time was federal time. You made a special point of mentioning that. Uh, can you go into why that's relevant to the overall story? Again, Bugliosi said that himself in Helter Skelter. He said one of the mysteries of Manson was every single time he was arrested or committed a crime, it was a federal crime usually minor federal crimes, like he stole a car and then he crosses state lines. So that means it's no longer a state or county offense. It's a federal offense. Federal uh, law enforcement is much more serious. You know, you, you go to prison, you don't go to jail. You have to deal with federal parole, probation, which is more strict. Uh, and every offense he ever had, including the one that sent him to prison the last time before he was released in 67, that was for stealing a letter from a mailbox and <laughs> cashing a $37 check or trying to cash a $37 check from, from the, the letter. So that was a violation of federal law because it was tampering with the post office. And I don't think there was any accident that all of his offenses were federal because it was in the federal prisons that these experiments and this research was going on, uh, you know, conducted by the CIA, the MK Ultra research. That's something I don't spend too much time on in the book, but I, I'm doing a lot more probing now about the people who were actually in the prisons doing it. I'm trying to get more proof that this actually happened while Manson was in prison before he was released in 67. That would be, a, I think that would be an amazing second book if that's what you're working on because yeah yeah you know it was recently revealed or not that recently but i think after whitey bulger's death that um he he was a subject of mk whitey bulger the boston monster mm -hmm. was a subject of mk ultra experiments in the 50s in federal prison Catch and a lot it. of that stuff came out through uh i don't know how the people got the records i have some of it now but this was going on there and it's documented and it was going on in the prisons that manson was in from like the mid fifties until his release in 67, even after when he went to Vacaville, uh, which was a, a Institute or excuse me, a prison for mentally unstable people and people that needed medical attention. So yeah, that will be 
if there's a second book, and there likely will be, that's going to be a much larger part of it. Okay, now, Manson, one of the big mysteries of Manson was the fact that he was not really a sophisticated master criminal who somehow got turned into a Rasputin yeah. uh, over time. And there's some early um, speculation or talk that he was dabbling with Scientology as well. With a, yeah, a, yeah. That's something I'm actually looking into a lot right now, um, but it's part of the official narrative that he studied Scientology at McNeil Prison in um, or McNeil Island off the coast of Seattle. And that's where he was from about 61 to 65 when he was sent back to L.A. to go to Terminal Island for release. The official narrative is that he audited or was audited for about 100 hours and absorbed a lot of the technique and the language of this religion uh, and then walked away from it. But a lot of it stayed, you know, stuff about ego and, you know, all this wordplay. Um, the question is, was there more to that? I mean, was he much more involved in, in Scientology? And, you know, Scientology had been infiltrated by federal agents, too, who were using it to accomplish things. And there's an interesting character who, who was the one who taught Manson Scientology, who, uh, who later uh, represented Squeaky Frome after assassination attempt of Gerald Ford in, in Northern California in 75. A uh, real interesting character. He died at about age 48. Uh, and uh, Is that Bruce Davis? No, no. This is a guy named uh, Laner Ramir. Oh. R-A-M-E-R. Bugliosi has his name completely twisted in, in Helter Skelter. I don't know if that was deliberate, uh, he, uh, misspelled, or, or an accident. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bruce Davis uh, is in prison, you know, still. He's one of the five, six, seven guys are people who are still serving prison sentences for murder. So he was convicted as an accessory in the Hinman murder and as uh, one of the murderers of Shorty Shea. And I went up to the prison early in my journey of of this. He's one of the only prisoners I think I interviewed face-to-face. I can ask if you were able to get to Manson or, you know, what happened with that too. Yeah. Well, just finishing with Bruce Davis, you know, yeah. he, he was suspected in a couple of other murders, including two Sci- Scientology teenagers in, in L.A. in November of 69. He denied all that and said he had stopped studying, studying Scientology. But I think there's a lot more to be told there. But um, I'm sorry, you just asked me about. Well, others like I, I didn't know um, if you had actually reached out to Manson or had. Oh, anything yeah, yeah, yeah. So Manson. To them. Yeah, Manson, uh, I interviewed on the telephone in 2000, uh, Mm. two or three times. And um, unfortunately, at the time I interviewed him, he was in the hole, you know, meaning in solitary. So he wasn't allowed to have visitors. He was just given phone privileges like once a week or something. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to look him in the eye and ask him questions. And uh, the two or three interviews, when you get to the end of the book, you'll see what happened in those interviews. So I won't give it away. But it was frustrating because it was literally the first 12 months of my reporting. And uh, I asked him stuff that seemed important to me then, but I have much more important stuff years later. So after I did those two or three interviews, which were pretty testy, he got angry at me and hung up on me. And 
his middle guy called me and said, you can't talk to the old man like that. You know, he gets really pissed off if he's not okay. showing respect. The guy who handled all of his, like his public relations, okay. guy named, a guy named Graybeard, who was, um, he lived outside of the uh, Corcoran prison walls in Hanford for like 20 or 30 years until he fell out with Manson a couple years before Manson died. Uh, if you remember, Manson was engaged to uh, a young woman and um, yeah. Manson discovered that while she was living with Graybeard, who was supposed to be kind of his gatekeeper, Graybeard was involved in a sexual relationship. He was serving. Him. He was the middleman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was doing what Manson did because they don't have conjugal <laughs> rights in California anymore, thanks to Sharon Tate's mother, Doris, who had it stopped. Um, but anyway, he, uh, I called him again in 2009. And he said, oh, you're in luck. He goes, Charlie's out of the hole. So not only can you see him, I mean, interview him, but this time you can do what you want to do and meet with him in person. And I hmm. said, great. He goes, all right, well, let me just start the process. You know, I have to get your name on the books there. Tell Charlie, make sure he's still cool with it. But he liked you. I think he respected you. He'll do it. And then I got a call like an hour later and I was out and I came home to my machine and it was Graybeard saying, never call me again. He goes, you have no idea how uh, dangerous what you've been doing is. He goes, if anybody asks me, I don't know you. I've never spoken to you. You've got a lot of really dangerous people pissed off at you. Wow. So I called him right back and I'm like, all right. So you called Charlie and Charlie found out through followers of his, former and current, who are mm -hmm. still in touch with him, the questions I've been asking for eight years. I go, why won't he answer, Why won't he meet with me? He goes, I'm not going to confirm or deny that. He goes, but let's just say Charlie knows what you've been up to, and he's really pissed off, and he's not going to meet with you. And then I think he hung up on me. So I never got that second chance. Hmm. That's a, There's not much great to say about Manson, but it seems like either through fear or something else, he might be a stand-up guy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I want to, not that, you know, I, I'm not naive enough to think that I would have been able to wring the truth out of him in a face-to-face -face interview, but I feel like it would have been a lot more effective than the phone calls, which were frustrating because you'll see at the end of my book, he kept getting off the phone and he had his guy inside the prison who's like his bodyguard assistant, a guy they called Pincushion because he'd been stabbed so many times in prison. And Pincushion kept getting on the phone and telling me not to ask Charlie this. You can't ask him that. It was all just so frustrating in 2000. So I was hoping to do the one-on-one face-to-face. -on -one but I guess I reported my way out of that because somebody snitched to him what I was, where my the course of my research had taken me. And he, he didn't like it. Well, to, to think about you and the psychology involved with doing this, because, I mean, you're pursuing something for so long and everything else. Are some of these interviews simply so you can hear them answer? And in many ways, who cares whether it's an effective interview or not? You actually can look at their face and get your own feelings about it, even if you're not able to put it down. Well, I, I really, I mean, there were so many people out there I wanted to talk to. I, I didn't really approach anyone unless I thought they had information. So I wouldn't go to them just to hear them repeat something they'd said before. Right. I wanted to, you know, break, break them and get, get the truth. And when people read the book, they'll see some of the interviews I did, like Charlie Gunther, for, interest, for, yeah. for, for instance. 
He was a head uh, homicide detective on the Hinman murder and really a heroic figure in Los Angeles law enforcement history. He, he helped, um, uh, God, now all of a sudden I'm blanking on his name, James Elroy, when James Elroy uh, investigated and then wrote a book about his murdered mother, Unsolved Murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he worked with Elroy on a couple other books, and Elroy called him the best, smartest cop he'd ever encountered in all his years writing about true crime and stuff. And I would interview Charlie Gunther, drive to Victorville from L.A., which is like an hour and a half out in no man's land. He would never, in the beginning, he wouldn't talk to me on the phone. He would never let me record him. But I would went to see him probably six times or eight times over 10 years. And then finally, he agreed to just talk to me. So I'd call him. And every time I talked to him, I'd try to get a little more information and I knew that there was stuff he couldn't tell me. He basically told me that. And I kept thinking that before he died, he'd break and tell me something. And unfortunately, he did die. I, I liked him a lot, even though it was so frustrating. But he, he never told me what I knew he knew. Well, and Terry Melcher, you kind of, I won't yeah. say broke, but it was, it, it was uh, there was some strain there. Yeah, yeah. He said he was going to throw me off his roof <laughs> and sue me. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't the only one that said he'd sue me, but um, yeah, he wasn't happy about my questioning and and the documents that I put in front of him that showed that he had told some big whoppers of lies, you know, under oath and a murder trial, which is pretty serious to commit perjury and not only a murder trial, but at the time uh, with a possibility of death because they they actually all did get death sentences after they were convicted, but those sentences were overturned when the Supreme Court of California uh, decided um, not to allow the death penalty anymore in the early 70s. So, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people that um, didn't like me showing up at their house or whatnot. Well, well leading off of the uh, death penalty, I, um, I think it was Billy Shaver is who put... Oh, Jimmy on- Shaver. Jim- sorry, Jimmy, sorry. Yeah, Jimmy Shaver, yeah. Is what put you on to um, a lot of the MK Ultra, or, or or got you really in there? Can we talk about that and then and circle around how it would relate to Manson? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was looking into Jolly West at that point, who was the MK Ultra psychiatrist who went to his grave, and again, the same year I began doing this, I think ninety nine. He had died like six months before. Mm-hmm. went to his gra- uh, grave denying that he had ever worked with the CIA, ever gave LSD to humans, uh, and, you know, he would challenge anyone to prove it, and nobody ever did. It was all circumstantial, but he left some evidence of it, I'm sure by accident, in his archive that he had donated to UCLA. So when I reached out to them in 2000, I think it was, once I realized that West had... Pro- proximity to Manson right when Manson became what the CIA was trying to produce, you know, somebody who could be programmed to kill and have no remorse, be amnesic of their programming. Uh, I requested access to his files, but he, again, only been dead like a year. And the person in the, in the, in the special records department said, well, we have to process them first. And there's, I think, 160 boxes that could take five years and I said, could we do it a box at a time? And I just wore her down. So she agreed. So they started releasing a few boxes at a time to me over the course of a year or two. So I'd go in there, you know, sometimes five days in a row, sometimes every other week. And I was looking for a needle in a haystack and I found it. He had accidentally left 
correspondence with the head of the CIA MK Ultra program, Gottlieb, who I'd mentioned before, describing how he was going to do these experiments on airmen at Lackland Air Force Base, where he was stationed in 1953 when he began working with the CIA to create amnesias, fugue states, you know, implant memories, remove them. And in the same files, I found out that he had been involved in a murder case that same year of an airman who had gone out and he had no history of violence, but he had been treated for traumatic uh, head, uh, head injury as a child. He was kicked by a horse and had these massive migraines. So he was treated and during this treatment, uh, which is what West was using as a cover to do his research, he would do patients and at the base. He wound up abducting a three-year-old girl and taking her to a pit and brutally raping and murdering her and just leaving her there. And there was a search party, you know, once the family realized that the girl had been abducted that lasted into the late hours of that same night. And they finally, these two guys who were um, kind of itinerant uh, at a gravel pit were sleeping outside their truck and they woke up and they saw this guy just kind of wandering around. His shirt was off and he was bleeding from scratch marks on his chest. And they went up to him and they said, are you all right? He goes, I don't know how I got here or where I am. And they called the police. The police came and he was the suspect in this little girl's murder. So that was one of the first kind of parallel tracks that I was looking at. Well, West, nobody at Lackland knew he was doing this research. He described to Gottlieb, his superior at the CIA, how he was going to cover it up and keep it from even his superiors and associates. And uh, all of a sudden, this guy came in. After he was arrested, West became his psychiatrist. So there were, that's, again, all explained in the book. But uh, I believe that was one of the first experiments that I'm sure went wrong. I do not think they wanted Jimmy Shaver, who was you know executed in ni 1958, I think, after he was convicted. But I'm sure they didn't want him to go out and kill this three-year-old girl. Right. And, and it's nearly similar to the Jack Ruby situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a and, lot of uh, different... Sirhan, uh, Sirhan, which is another case, but there's a similarity to that as which well. One? Oh, Sirhan, yeah, yeah. That was frustrating for me. Uh, uh, you know, I have tons and tons of reporting on Sirhan, and we wanted to put a couple chapters in the book. I got another collaborator. This guy worked out great and was perfect. We just had a perfect working relationship. And he and I went back and forth, and we finally decided that we'd have to save the Sirhan stuff for a second book because I wasn't able to link Sirhan to this particular psychiatrist, Wes. But the, you know, the parallels between what I'm presenting in my chaos book and what happened to Sirhan. Yeah, so I'm still reporting that too. But, um, you know, that's an interesting case. I think he has a parole hearing in the fall. And, um, you know, as many as Paul Schrade, who was shot in the head next to Kennedy, Bob, Bobby Kennedy, you know, in the pantry at the, at the hotel in 68 and almost died. He's now 90 something and he's been meeting with Sirhan and went to Sirhan's last parole hearing and begged that he be given a new evidentiary hearing because he believes these assassination researchers who have shown him evidence that there that Sirhan didn't shoot the uh, pull the trigger that uh, was responsible for killing Kennedy, 
And now Bobby Kennedy Jr. is also uh, trying to get them to have an evidentiary hearing. And I know some people who I've been in discussions with who are working really hard to get this to happen. And uh, I'm not allowed to say too much about it yet, but I think in October they're going to make a big announcement, which is, I think, right before Sir Han's next parole hearing. Mm. You know, showing new evidence that, you know, um, makes you wonder, not wonder, but I think it's pretty irrefutable that there was a second gunman. And that Sirhan didn't know why. I mean, Sirhan was in there. He shot a gun. He doesn't know how he got in there. He has no recollection of uh, what happened there that night. And the so, polka dot dress girl and yeah, the guard yeah. right next to him at the perfect angle with the exact yeah. same weapon mm-hmm. that he said that he sold, but he didn't actually sell until two months after that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thane Cesar. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just died a year or two ago. And I really wanted to, went out to his house, tried to interview him. And about that time, he left uh, California and moved back to uh, somewhere in the Caribbean, I think, and died there. Now, somebody in the chat was asking, uh, all this experimentation, was it LSD or, I'm probably saying it wrong, but Scopa... Yeah, it was was that and mescaline. And then there were drugs that have never been given names that the um, CIA was experimenting with. They were also blending, you know, making cocktails with amphetamines and LSD. There was something called BZ. And it was also in combination, at least in in West, Jolly West Mm. work with hypnosis, uh, where he would hypnotize people after they've been given drugs and then he found that they were much more easy to manipulate and not just manipulate, but to direct their behavior um, with a combination of the two. Okay. So now that brings us back to Charlie and you found conclusively at least witnesses who stated and confirmed that somebody taught Charlie how to hypnotize people. And you did find a link where they could have crossed paths because they were in the same location at the same time with the same people. Can you discuss yeah. that at all? Yeah. Well, I didn't discover the hypnotist who claimed to have uh, taught Manson hypno- hypnosis. I got to give that credit to Ed Sanders, the hmm. author who wrote the family. And he was actually covering the case from day one for the LA uh, free press. Um, so he found this guy, Deanier, D E A N Y E R who worked at a club. I think it was called the galaxy on sunset. That was kind of like an entertainment venue that specialized in having hypnotists and stuff. And um, he was the one who told Sanders that he had taught Manson. Manson would come in there and was very interested in learning hypnosis. But what Ed Sanders didn't learn, but what I found out was Junior wasn't his real name. He had actually come from Hawaii and he was a, uh, had a hypnotism school there in the 50s before he came to L.A., and he was arrested and tried um, for doing exactly what Manson did, brainwashing young girls who were his hypnotism students, usually a- ranging in age from 12 to 16 or 17, and, and, raping, yeah, yeah, and raping them. So, And he was uh, in the Navy, and he worked. This is one thing I was still not been able to figure out, how the Navy allowed somebody who was full-time in the service based in Honolulu to have a hypnotism practice on shore. Uh, Anyway, uh, he was arrested, charged, and I was able to get records of his trial, which I think was like 58 or 59. 
And the experts and the cops who testified against him for the prosecution said that all these girls appear to still be under his control because the girls all took the stand, all of his victims, to say that he hadn't hypnotized them, uh, that he hadn't you know, been inappropriate with them at all. And the jury had to choose to acquit because he didn't have a single victim testifying that, yes, he did that to me. Uh, but he didn't lose his position in the Navy either, which I couldn't figure out. He was there for another two years. He would do mm. shows at different naval bases. Uh, and then when he was in Long Beach, I think, in like 60 or 61, he left the military. And I've not been able to find out what his departure was, if it was an honorary discharge or, or what happened. But all of a sudden, changed his name, his whole history, his whole biography, and became this guy named Diener in, in Sunset, on Sunset Strip. No, I'm just kidding. I know. So there were a lot of these shady people with two identities or three identities influencing and coming into in touch with Manson in literally less than two years that Manson became this mastermind guru um, who, who could get these people to do anything he asked them to, including murder strangers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so freaking insane. I mean, all, all of it. It just... And it seems to be indicative of the time. Now, we're running um, in time. And to close out, I guess my big question is this, and I, I know it's a weird one, but CIA was doing all this stuff. And as you mentioned in the book, too, uh, COINTELPRO, you mentioned Chaos, MKUltra, they all just kind of blur together. Um, was it Nightbird? And then um, uh, Midnight. Oh, Climax. Like Mid Midnight Climax, which is appropriately named. <laughs> Um, why did it stop or did it stop and did it lead into like remote viewing in the 80s? Yeah, well, I can't say for sure, but I do know that it officially stopped according to the agency, to the CIA, when they got caught. Uh, what happened was uh, Richard Helms, who oversaw the program from its inception with Alan Dulles, who was no longer with the CIA after, uh, well, Kennedy had him, John Kennedy had him fired in 63 or 62, but uh, Richard Helms and Dulles had run MKUltra from 1952 when it was created. And then when Dulles was gone, it was Helms running it as an associate director. He had different positions there. And Sidney Gottlieb was the scientist, the mastermind who invented everything or, or just, you know, supervised it. Helms became the CIA director. And then because of Watergate, uh, they found that Helms had perjured himself in another thing, and Watergate was closing in, so he had to leave the CIA, and he and Gottlieb destroyed all the documents, all the records of uh, the MKUltra program, and we wouldn't have ever known about it if not for them missing um, mostly financial records of it that were stored, you know, off-site off in, in, in a warehouse somewhere that a uh, the guy who wrote in the search for the uh, the search for the Manchurian candidate who worked for the State Department found, and through a slow trickling of information, it all kind of well it was reported first by the investigative journalist Seymour Hersh in around '74. So the CIA said that we have no records anymore; we destroyed them, which is actually everything about MKUltra was illegal. The CIA isn't allowed to operate domestically. This was a domestic operation. 
and international, but they did a ton of stuff here. You're also not allowed to give drugs to people without you know, their, their knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and then you're not allowed to destroy government records like that. That all has to be maintained. So um, now I can't remember what the question was. Oh, did it stop then? So officially they said it stopped then when Helms and Gottlieb left the agency. A lot of people believe it went on. I personally don't know because I really, in order not to make this a 40-year project and just the 20 years, I pretty much stopped <laughs> everything chronologically at the end of Helms and Gottlieb. So everything in my book just goes to about 73. I mean, the Patty Hearst case, which happened after, and Donald DeFries, that's all I've got. I've got DeFries's um, FBI file in there. It cost me a fortune, and it's massive. But all that stuff, again, I keep saying, but if there's a second book, it'll be in there. Oh, speaking of fortune and massive, uh, massive. how did you get a hold of Five Down a Cielo Drive? Uh, actually, I got it from a journalist who I shared information with back in the very first year and I have to look it up, but I, I can't remember what it was that I gave him, but it was a trade. I can't remember how he got it. I do have his name. I have to find him and see whether or not he even knew my book came out 20 years later. But he gave it to me. And um, I took it to uh, Frenchie Lajeunesse, who was the FBI guy who was unofficially working on the case with Sharon Tate's father, Paul Tate who was military intelligence and investigating his own daughter's murder. And then Bob Helder, the head of the uh, LAPD, who, who ran the Tate investigation, he was dead. But uh, mm -hmm. Frenchie uh, confirmed that that was their manuscript. He, he helped them write it. And Paul Tate, um, who would never meet with me in person, but had agreed to because he found out I had the book. And like he confirmed that the pseudonym they used for Reeve Whitson, Walter Kern, was Reeve Whitson. But he ended up always getting angry with me and not meeting. So as far as I know, nobody else has the book. Um, Patty Tate, who was Sharon's sister, who was after Doris Tate, their mother died. Uh, Doris went to all the parole hearings and she died. Then Patty took her place and she went to all the parole hearings. She got involved with a woman, left her husband for the woman. That woman ended up taking all of Patty's possessions when Patty died including mm. custody of her two kids. And she wrote a book with um, Patty's daughter, Bree, that came out about five or six years ago called Restless Souls that is purported to be taken from the manuscript, but it's not. It's mostly invented. I have the book and I've compared it. So I don't know if anybody else has it, uh, but it was one of the you know lucky <laughs> moments in the journey of this was that helped a lot getting that book, that manuscript. It's right up there. <laughs> That's awesome. Hopefully it appears someday in electronic form somehow. But um, yeah, I find that uh, amazing all the time you put in. And I guess I lied. I have one more question. Okay. At what point did you finally say, okay, I'm at the end of my string? Because it seems like every time you're like, okay, I, you know, you, you had an article and your deadline got extended, extended. Oh, wait, more research. Oh, wait. And you're still getting stuff in now. So, but what, what drove you? I, know, I, I, I had that point like every other day for 20 years. And usually it would be when my agent would threaten to fire me, even though I'm supposed to fire him. But, mm. um, you know, I got, I got sued by my first publisher for not turning in the book. And that held everything up because we had to resolve that lawsuit for, 
two or three years. Um, I think it was 2017 where I just, you know, I knew I had to do it. I knew I couldn't do it on my own anymore, that I needed a real collaborator. So I threatened my agent saying, I'm going to work with a collaborator whose name I won't share right now, who was really good and really smart, but they were, let's say, in their 80s and not up to the job. But I said, unless you can find me someone who's really good, I'm just going to, we're going to do the book. And that kind of lit a fire under him. And he turned up this guy named Dan Pipenbring, who had just lost um, a job, was working with Prince on Prince's memoir, and then Prince died. And they knew that it would take a couple of years before he could pick up, even if he could pick up where he and Prince had left off to finish it. But it would take a couple of years because of legal stuff going on with his, his Prince's estate. So they said, Dan's probably free for a year or two. And we think you guys would really mesh. And we met and talked. And, and once he came on, we turned the book out in about a year and a half. You know, so if he hadn't turned up, I'd still be writing and. I had just started Uber driving and that was really, really depressing, but I had run out of money. I couldn't get loans anymore. So um, once that all happened and I realized I was getting way too old to live like 20 year old kid or, you know, that, and I was really scared that I was going to drop dead, not from anything nefarious, but I thought it would be such a tragedy if I die and this book never comes out and all this stuff that I think is really important and needs to be out there in the world would never be seen. So it was a combination of those things around 2017 uh, that I really kind of motivated me to, it was also the lawsuit ending by Penguin because my publisher said, we can't take it out and try to resell it while there's litigation against it. You know, you're going to be, no, and we still might not be able to sell it. So it was once the lawsuit ended and I realized how pathetic my life had become <laughs> and tragic uh, that, that got me to really, you know, do it. And thank God. <laughs> How did it feel when it came out? Oh, it felt fantastic. You know, it was a lot of people couldn't believe it in my life. Even, you know, people who knew me and loved me were really worried that this was never going to end. And it would be my epitaph that I lost my mind and my life trying to get this crazy conspiracy story figured out. So, I mean, my mom was, she's 94 now, so she was 92 then. She went to the Barnes & Noble outside of Philly where she lives at, I think, 8 in the morning and waited outside the door for an hour until they opened. And <laughs> right up, you know, I had sent her an advanced copy, but she wanted to buy one and see it. On the show, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> all the people working there got all excited when she said, I was the author, and she said, it doesn't belong here because it was low on a table, it was on a display table. And they said, okay, Mrs. O'Neill, we'll put, and they put it way up. So it's the first thing you see. And she had her picture taken in front of it. That's the kind of thing that happened when the book came out. It felt great. Do you feel, um, and I know I'm going on and we're about to wrap up, but I mean, do you feel better and freer? I mean, like, oh, yeah. do you feel like the next one you can just kind of just write and get out like a premiere story versus? Uh, yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I don't want to do it as another book that is not like really ground and proven. I don't want it to be speculative and circumstantial. I know I have enough stuff to make a compelling book. And I talked to Dan all the time, my collaborator. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do this without you because I know I'll never be able to do it in a year or two. 
but we check in with each other like monthly. And he's like, you getting close? I said, then as soon as I get one more smoking gun, he goes, you know, we've got enough. I go, I know I need more. I need more. So luckily, he just got, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to give myself a deadline yet, but hopefully there's a couple of things that if they work out, then it will be a better book than the last one. Uh, and hopefully that'll happen and it'll come out in our lifetime. Awesome. And yes, uh, Carla Vegas, the book is on Audible. That's how I've been consuming it. Highly recommend. And there is a link in the description. You click there and Amazon has the audio book. Yeah, except I, I, I know people love the Audible book and I listen to Audible books, but you don't get the footnotes. There's like 60 pages. I know I'm bummed about that, but you could attach a PDF to it or, or put I a could. code on your site. Yeah, they, they do offer that. Like there's the pictures are there as a PDF. So the oh, footnotes goodness. would be amazing. If they could be added as a PDF. For yeah, those maybe it. I should talk to the publisher about that, because I hate the fact that people don't get to see the footnotes, which have, you know, as an author, you can cheat. And in, in my footnotes, I add information that didn't make it into the main body. So you get more stuff back there. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm mad about, because I, I want to track those down myself. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, yeah, because I think you said there's 60 pages of them in the book. I'm like. So that's how I know that the pictures are there. Like, yeah. That's nice. Where are the foot? Oh, man. Yeah, tell, but, but if people go to my um, my my social media, they'll see a lot of the photos, too, that actually some of them that weren't in the book that we didn't use. Okay, awesome. Yes. Now, on that, uh, social media, you're on Facebook as Chaos the Book, mm. and it's actually written out. But if you just search Chaos, yeah. it will come up. It'll I mean, it, up, it's yeah. the first hit. And then on Instagram, you have a lot of stuff I know on Instagram, you're telling me, and that is uh, Chaos Charles Manson. Yeah. All one word. I'll try mm -hmm. to put these in the uh, show notes as well, or the description, right. so we can click on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Tom, this has been amazing. Thank you oh, so much. Thanks. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.